Words, they get golly hard when they jumble Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle Merkin fool, like squirtle and cake rule Cold blood is with the strong scheme, I'm a boss Flip the coin, toss, it's straws, I'm out of loss How my brains get busted, slinging letters into couplets Muck up the stuff this is Ellie Newman, and you're listening to That Got Me Thinking. Thanks for joining us. Today, my guest is David Perkins. Dave Perkins moved to Park City, Utah in 2004 to pursue his passion to make whiskey. With a background as a biochemist in the biopharmaceutical industry, a love of bourbon from being raised in Georgia, and a love of cooking, David knew he was fated to make whiskey. After learning the secrets of making really good whiskey from distillers in Kentucky and Scotland, David decided to start a distillery and make whiskey proprietor of High West Distillery and Saloon in Park City, Utah. Thanks for joining me, David. Well, thank you, Alan. So what got me thinking this week was reading a number of stories about the beer brewing industry and how a number of the small brewers who market themselves as being local hands-on brewers, it turned out they weren't actually brewing their own beer. And I started thinking about the whole industry of beers and bourbons and whiskeys and that there may be more behind all of that than we know. So I figured you were the guy to have on the show. You're, you're the expert. I want to start with what got you into, from your background in biochemistry, what got you into brewing, distilling uh, whiskey? I frankly like the product. And had you always liked the product? Was that something that went along with your love of um, cooking and, and growing up in Georgia, being raised on bourbon? How much were you actually raised on bourbon? Was that something your mom did when you were a baby and crying? <laughs> we hear the stories of dipping the uh, pacifier in liquor. So was yours always a good, strong bourbon? I, you know, I, I, I only remember a couple of fond members of having a hot toddy. Um, Probably more when I was a teenager, right? not not too young, but a hot toddy with lemon, sugar, and whiskey when you had a cold, and, and it sort of helped you sleep better. Do you think of yourself as a, a foodie? I mean, is, are you someone who's always been really aware of the subtleties of taste and as far as um, a drink or, or food goes? Well, I think I've discovered that I've always been, but I didn't know I've always been. Um, but my mom was a good cook, and I think... I, I, I always knew food was important to me, but I didn't know how important until later on in life. And yeah, I care about good food now. Uh, and I realized that I always have, and I've always had a, a good, uh, uh, because of my mom, I would say, you know, I grew to appreciate good food. So in Latin, um, whiskey means the water of life. Have you, has that come to be more true with getting, gaining a deeper experience with it? Um, well, Latin water life is aqua vitae, and uh, whiskey comes from the Gaelic, which means water of life. So it's, it certainly means water of life, too, but uh, um, I think uh, I've grown to appreciate more and more that uh, it, it is, for me, the water of life because it puts food on the table. But it also creates pleasure for me. It creates friendships for me. And it uh, certainly brought my wife and I um, to a richer place together because uh, we've really enjoyed building our brand around whiskey and the stories around it. And uh, her family has a heritage with it as well. So I would say it is water of life for us. That's a good quote. And what was the transition from you were living in Silicon Valley? You had been in a very competitive 
uh, corporate industry for your entire career, and you made a huge move on all levels. You moved to Park City, Utah, a very different place than Palo Alto, California, and you began a completely new venture. What inspired that, and, and what were the first moments and years like in that transition? Wow, that's a mouthful, Ellen. Um, I think what inspired it was always the idea I wanted to do my own thing. And it, uh, there was no grand plan to make whiskey. It really was an aha moment for me. Um, and everything collided at once to create what we ended up doing. But we were moving to Park City regardless of whiskey. Um, and if it didn't work out, we'd do something else. We just wanted to live in the mountains and change lifestyle from busy Silicon Valley to less busy mountains. Um, and luckily the whiskey thing came along when it did. And it, it really, again, Mars, Jupiter, and the moon all aligned perfectly for what we wanted to do. And uh, it's, it's, uh, we haven't looked back, to be honest. So I love when people mention that, that it was an aha moment, because then I know it's going to be a good story. What was that aha moment? How did you even have an idea that maybe whiskey would be the thing? It was random. My my beautiful, lovely wife, Jane, and I were um, going to a wedding, our cousin's wedding, in Kentucky. And it was a whim that, wow, let's go to a distillery. Because uh, at the time, we had lived in Silicon Valley, as you mentioned, and we liked going to Napa with you guys. And uh, I think... The idea of going to a distillery, because we'd never been to one, was kind of intriguing for us. And on the tour, that's the aha moment. Uh, it looked like the company I was working at the time, Genentech, it was the same equipment. And in fact, you do the exact same thing in a whiskey distillery as you do at Genentech. Uh, you use biotechnology to make a drug that humankind wants, in this case, ethanol. But it, you, you use yeast. Yeast have a gene that code for ethanol and you grow them up the same way use the same tanks and you separate it more or less the same way that was an aha and then in the barrel warehouse the real aha that was the hook setting i guess uh it just smelled good and i just i still remember the smell to this day and i don't think smells are always that important to me but i think that's when i really knew i had a good nose and i thought you know the, the side of the equipment you see the nose and the smells uh, at that night, I told Jane, I think this is what I want to do. And she said, let's do it. So, so you thought, it was pretty straightforward. I know this. I could be good at this. And did it look fun? It did. Well, I mean, you know, we were drinking the, the whiskey at the end of the tour. <laughs> so and as, like, as the tour went I on, like it this. looked more and more fun. Yeah. I mean, so it was, uh, and so I started doing my homework on the industry. And that's what I had done in my career was, look at uh, drugs and look out 10 years and think how they might be used. And whiskey's kind of the same as a drug. It takes about 10 years to, you know, get the business done and put it in wood and let it age. Really no different than the skill set I had at Genentech. And, uh, you know, plus it was a little more fun than drugs at Genentech. So. You told Forbes magazine, with a biochemistry degree, I worked in drugs my entire life prior to High West for companies like 
Fitzer, Amgen, Genentech, that experience gave me a front row view to all the facets of pharmaceutical commercialization, including product management, forecasting, product development, and market research. Those elements are probably something people probably didn't really make the connection with the drug industry that, that you are, and that, that's enlightening on its own. But the, the fact that making whiskey and bourbon and, and products like that take product management, forecasting, product development, and market research. So you really did approach it from a business standpoint as well as from that of a connoisseur. Do you feel like those elements, having focused from the beginning on those elements, have helped to make the company such the success that it is? Well, I I think that's a fair question, and like I said, Jupiter and Venus and the Moon all lined up, and I had the skill sets that I needed in order to combine those with the passion. And uh, if I hadn't had those, I don't think I could do what I did today. Uh, and were so there that's parts exactly right. that were surprising to you in developing the product that came as sort of the opposite of an aha, but as an oh no, that were more challenging than you thought or that you weren't prepared for? Um, I, I, I don't know how to answer that. I mean, I, I, we, we did a lot of planning early on, and um, the, the forecasting in the drug industry just taught me to think through every possible permutation. And, you know, for the most part, we kind of did, and we always had a plan B or a plan C if something didn't go right. And I think that was the skill set of planning in the drug business because there's so many things that can go wrong. And it, it's really not what will be. It's what can be. And I think that was the skill set, again, from the drug business. Um, you know, we, we put down a plan for the business for whiskey. And, we, you know, you really have no idea what's going to happen in 10 years. But you have an idea of what could happen in 10 years. And you find that pathway. So clearly you're a man who likes a challenge because you chose Utah to make booze. Um, is it more challenging to do it in Utah than it is anywhere else, or is that a uh, myth? Well, the fact is it's challenging to do it anywhere because it's alcohol, and the federal government's involved, and when the federal government's involved, they have a lot of layers in place that just make it hard. So um, Utah is really no different than any other state. In fact, Utah is some, somehow easier than some other states because we actually had laws on the books that allowed us to distill um, and they changed some laws when we asked. So, for instance, we can sell alcohol directly out of our store. Uh, in California, you can't. Uh, and you might think just the opposite, that you could in California. They just changed the law this year in California, but it took them six years to do that. And So we actually had some better laws than uh, what you would consider more uh, liberal states. So let's talk a little bit about the product itself. Was there any question whether it was going to be whiskey with an E or whiskey just with a Y? You know, I, I crossed that bridge and I didn't know how to spell it when we were writing the business plan. Was it W-H-I-S-K-Y or W-H-I-S-K-E-Y? And it, it turns out it really doesn't matter. It's just there's some uh, historical conventions. You don't use the E in Scotland or Canada. You do in Ireland and the United States. But, uh, and is it um, offensive if you use it in Scotland or Canada? Uh, you know, some people can be dogmatic about it. I'm not, so I'm, I'm pretty straightforward. Whiskey is, is uh, most importantly, it's, it's an alcohol made from fermented grain. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all doing. And uh, any particular grain? Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, if you use any grain you, and you ferment it, you get beer. And then if you distill that beer and separate the alcohol out, you get whiskey. 
So I don't care if that grain's wheat, barley, oats, rye, corn. They all make whiskey. Now, different recipes that you've heard of, like bourbon, is whiskey that's made with corn, predominantly. Scotch is whiskey that's made with malted barley, predominantly. Irish is whiskey that's made from unmalted barley, predominantly. And, and on and on. And most consumers don't know that yet. And I think the, the pleasure for me was teaching people that. And people go, oh, wow, I didn't know that. And that's been fun. And what's the distinction between fermenting and distilling? That's a good question. Fermenting is using yeast. And if you've ever baked bread, you've fermented. Yeast eat uh, sugar. And they convert that sugar to carbon dioxide and ethanol. That's fermentation. And then distilling is where you use a, uh, you separate things based on their physical property of their boiling point. So water boils at 212. Ethanol boils at 173. So uh, you use that difference in boiling point to separate things. And that's what the distilling is. So first you have to ferment to get the alcohol. Because alcohol only comes from the yeast process. And then you separate the alcohol out. That's called distilling. And are these done in vats as beer is? Well, indeed. Uh, the first life or the first part of whiskey's life is beer. And so uh, whiskey essentially has a brewery. Uh, and then it goes one more step after the brewery. Well, a couple more steps. And, and could but you first... stop it at that process and actually drink the beer and think, oh, this is a good, a good brew? Well, you could. Um, you might not think it's a good brew because when we make whiskey, we make beer that's much more sour. So, um, for instance, if you've ever had a sour Flemish ale, um, they're low, sour means lower in pH. And we like that low pH because it creates different flavors that will turn out to be wonderful in the whiskey world. So, And then we also don't separate out the grains when we make our beer. So you'd be drinking beer and you get a mouthful of the grains, and you might not think that's so good. But it's probably what Beowulf had when they were drinking their stuff, I guess. So if you want to be hardy, Trojan or <laughs> Viking or back back even further. That's exactly drink right. It. And so the next step after that, you put it in, in what? After it's so sour you beer. have those beer vats, and then you, you've got your beer. So if you can imagine a Coors beer or what we call our distiller's beer, we put that in a still. And a still is just a big teapot, and it boils stuff. And so you boil that beer. And the first thing that happens when you boil that beer, it starts to bubble, but it bubbles at about 168. And that's not water at 168. Uh, that's methanol and, and some of the uh, ethyl acetate and acetone. So it's some low boiling point volatiles, and you know they come up as steam, and you channel that steam uh, to a condenser that has cold water uh, running through it. The steam hits cold water and condenses back to liquid. That first liquid that comes off is your whiskey, and so the water stays behind in the pot because as it goes up to two twelve, as it works its way up, you're getting your ethanol, and as soon as it hits. Uh, 212, or you know, it, it's much before it's 212, but then it's water, and you just stop boiling the the your teapot, and you have that that liquid that you separate. That's your whiskey. And so it really is chemistry. Are you making choices all along as far as the exact temperature, how long you let it boil, the amount of evaporation that's that's gathered or let let off? Are those options along the way or is it a fairly standard process up to this point well it's a fairly standard process but there's a lot of ways to screw up the process so um 
yes, you are making choices, and making good whiskey is really hard to do, actually. And it's those, that combination of those choices that is the difference between good whiskey and bad whiskey. And so when you first started High West Distillery, as you've mentioned a couple times just in the show, it takes years to make a whiskey. Um, and the same, I'm guessing, with a bourbon. So what did you do? How did the company actually begin? Well, um, we began by writing a plan and trying to understand the economics of what it would look like and can you make rent and payroll. And it turns out when you put stuff in wood and let it sit for a number of years, it's very hard to make rent and payroll. So uh, we we looked at two things. One is we opened a restaurant because a restaurant could cash flow a little earlier. Uh, and then two, we looked at something that I was absolutely totally against. But once I understood the economics of the business, it just made sense. We outsourced. So just like Sam Adams Beer, when he started his brewery, he didn't have the money to buy the equipment, the tanks and stuff. It cost a lot of money. He outsourced space at Pabst and uh, you know, Rolling Rock and different places uh, so he could do his recipe on their equipment because it turns out there was a lot of spare capacity or extra capacity in the brewing business. The same thing happens with whiskey. There's a lot of excess capacity. So we were able to buy some aged whiskey from some companies as well as contract space in their plant so we didn't have to afford the big plant because there's no way we could have gotten in the business. And that turned out to be a shocker to a lot of consumers because they thought, well, you're not making your own stuff. And uh, then when we explained to people, well, you know, there's, there's about eight distilleries that make whiskey and there's about 400 brands. So, you know, go figure that out. There's a lot of people out there buying whiskey and putting it in a bottle and calling it their own. Uh, that was something that was important to us. We didn't want to do that. Um, uh, so we were always very open about where we got our whiskey and the fact that we were creating blends. So, but we got into a lot of questions. What the, de- what is the definition of make? Is it the actual manufacturing of it? Is it the blending of it? And if you look at the shirt on your back, it might have Brooks Brothers or Laura Ashley. Well, did they make that? No, it probably came from a plant in China that has nothing to do with Brooks Brothers. Uh, Apple Computer, they're made in plants in China that had nothing to do with Apple Computer. Almost all of our products we buy today, there's several companies along the, the chain. And, you know, most consumers don't really know that. But with whiskey, because you put it in your mouth, they cared about that. And so it became at the forefront. It was a big issue in the industry in the last two years. And so your unique mark at that point was the blending and the determining which whiskeys to purchase and then how to blend them. You were actually mixing them prior to selling them as High West Distillery whiskey. Is that accurate? Most of them we were. I mean, there were some that were so good. We thought, I mean, my gosh, we wouldn't want to mix them with anything because they were so good. But I, I think... One of the things we did when we started was discover a a whiskey that had always been around, but no one had really had because it kind of disappeared. That was rye whiskey. And so uh, there was maybe two rye whiskeys on the market, and they weren't that popular. We found a plant that made rye whiskey uh, that nobody had ever had. It was amazing whiskey. And uh, we were among the first to sell that. So you might say, well, there was some innovation there because uh, we took a risk on something no one really thought they could make any money on. So and, were, uh, you, were you drinking a lot at this point? Were there a, a lot of tasting going on to establish which, which ones were, were going to be yours? Oh, absolutely. and that's the fun part of the job. There was a lot of that. And that's, uh, that's the, I really discovered I had a passion and a palate for uh, tasting and blending and nosing. And uh, um, I'm much better today than when we started. But that's, that's the passion. And it is, is it a tight-knit community? Have you developed relationships within 
the business as you went along, as you visited these different distillers and, and have relationships, long-lasting relationships developed? It is, it's not a big community. And as you mentioned, it is tight knit uh, because it's not a big community. And in fact, all the, the manufacturers, you know, they mostly know each other and they're all good friends. And, um, you know, they, they in fact trade whiskeys with each other sometimes. Uh, but now I have, I do consider some lifelong friends in the, in the business, uh, um, just because the American whiskey business felt sort of second fiddle to Scotch whiskey. Scotch got all the glory. Uh, and, you know, bourbon was really a, a sort of not considered high end for a long, long time. That's changed now. Uh, but the people in the business were excited that, you know, new blood was coming in, Charlie, to help sell it and communicate to consumers how good of a product it really is. And what's the difference between bourbon and whiskey? Oh, that's a fair question. I get that all the time. So whiskey's the category. And if you think of a hierarchy or a family tree, whiskey's at the top. Underneath whiskey, you have bourbon whiskey, rye whiskey, scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey. They're all whiskeys because I get this all the time. Well, I don't drink whiskey. I drink scotch. Well, scotch is a whiskey or, you know, I don't drink whiskey. I drink bourbon. Bourbon's a whiskey. Uh, and what the different names are is just different recipes. So, And what does it take to become a master distiller? Um, well, the term master distiller is sort of an industry made up term and the industry didn't have those names for the longest time. It came only recently when, uh, uh, as the companies are trying to market themselves and the master distiller is somewhat like the, the chief vintner at a, or a winemaker, uh, just a guy that's at the head of the totem pole and you know, in charge of the plant and the product quality, but there's no sort of criteria for what master means. And there's, it's than, not like becoming a sommelier. There's not school and tests. and, and No, that's and exactly that. right. So sommelier does have a, a you know set of criteria and stuff. There's nothing for master to sell. So it's, it's more a marketing term than it is, uh, uh, you know, an industry term, but you know, everybody uses it now. Um, it, you know, hopefully one day they will have some criteria for it. But. All right. We're going to take a short break. This is Ellie Newman. You're listening to That Got Me Thinking. I'm here with David Perkins, the creator and pretty much everything behind and in front of High West Distillery Restaurant and now Ranch. Is that right? We'll talk about that when we come back and a little bit about the history of whiskey. This is KDPI 88.5 Ketchum. All right, we're back. You're listening to That Got Me Thinking. This is Ellie Newman. I'm here with David Perkins of High West Distillery. We're talking about whiskey, bourbon, and scotch and all that goes with it. So, David, tell us a little bit about the history of whiskey. I know you are someone who has researched well and deeply. So when you first got interested in whiskey, I'm sure you dove in to find out its beginnings. What did did you learn? Oh, whiskey is fun, uh, but it sort of goes back further than whiskey. It goes to all distilled spirits, which sort of go back to uh, alchemy and uh, the uh, search for uh, the magic elixir and uh, the, the giver of life. And um, we 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 do know that uh, the Persians and there was a sort of father of modern chemistry uh, that that invented the first still. We think. Uh, and they, they weren't looking for an alcoholic potion, but they put wine in the still and, and boiled it off. And um, they, they, again, it was a, a chemist, an alchemist looking for the elixir of life. And um, the, uh, so the, the inventors of uh, the word alcohol were Arabic. So it's kind of ironic 
uh, alcohol AL, when it has AL in front, like algebra or al Jazeera, it's an Arabic term. So one of the ironies of alcohol is that the, the name comes from Arabic. Um, but the, also the, Arab, the Arabs, the father of modern chemistry, invented the still and uh, did the first distillation. So, so then every culture distilled stuff, and whatever you fermented, every culture fermented stuff, so whether it was wine or beer, uh, the next logical step was to put it in this new contraption and boil it off and see what you can make. And uh, if you boil off the alcohol from wine, you get brandy. And uh, so in Europe, you had a lot of people making brandy. And then if you boil off the alcohol from beer, which was more northern Europe in the colder climates, you would get whiskey. So we think the first whiskey was made in um, the uh, uh, United Kingdom uh, in Ireland. So we, we associate with either Scotland or Ireland, and nobody really knows. But we think the Irish monks were the first to, to distill because they took the learning. Uh, they were the smart people, and they were the ones playing around with things. And so it was natural for them to be the ones making whiskey. And then it evolved. So every culture had its alcohol all around the world. Every culture has its alcohol. But whiskey was from the cultures that were cold and relied on grain more than grapes. And was part of that experimentation element what, what has hooked you and kept you interested and engaged in your business? The idea that this was something that you could play with, that you could utilize your background in chemistry and your uh, great sense of smell and taste and and play and experiment and has that been something you've done uh yeah i mean i think that's kind of a, a fundamental tenet for us is to play and experiment and really to um, improve or make the the best whiskey we possibly can and i've got a talented team uh, at high west that, that we're all driven to look at those kinds of questions and try to answer them and run experiments and um, we all like to tinker a little bit, but at the end of the day, you got to pay the bills, so you can't tinker too much. Uh, but to make the best whiskey, as the gold is set out, it sure helps to be able to know how to think experimentally and be systematic about and it. And done, that's fun. You've done some major tinkering with the process itself, haven't you? With your um, utilizing oak. Um, well, I mean, we haven't done huge tinkering. I mean, the process is kind of prescribed for what you need to do to make whiskey, but then there's sort of sub-processes that you tinker with and how exactly you do the distillation and how exactly you age. So we do experiment with oak and have put our different whiskeys in different oak barrels that come from different wineries. Um, we have a pretty interesting uh, distillation um, process that uh, our distiller, Brendan Coyle, devised uh, so it's it's an innovative, different still setup than you'd see in Kentucky or Scotland, but it kind of combines a little bit from both. Um, and you know, we in fermentation we use different yeasts, and not everybody uses different yeasts. So there's lots of fun places to experiment and affect flavor, and that's fun. And and you made a reference earlier about a connection with cooking and and your your joy of that and your mother being a cook. How much is it like baking versus making a meal? Can you taste things along the way or do you have to sort of put all the pieces together and then wait a number of years to find out if it worked or not? Um, that's a fair question. It's a little bit of both. I mean, certainly when you, uh, you, you start with grain and you can smell the grain and smell if it's old and musty or fresh and um, kind of vibrant and then fresh grain smells better. When you make your beer, you can certainly taste the beer and you, you can definitely taste a good beer versus a bad beer. When you boil off the alcohol and create the spirit, uh, you taste that, we call that new make spirit or white dog. Um, 
there's some horrible white dogs out there and there's some really good white dogs. And, and uh, can the, you the take a horrible white dog and turn it into a good white dog? Uh, the next whatever comes after a white dog or once it's a bad white dog, is it out? No well, it, it's, uh, it, well, then you take the white dog and you put it in barrel and you let it age. So garbage in, garbage out. You can put some okay white dog in and the barrel will improve it. Uh, because wonderful things happen in the barrel, but if you put better white dog in and focus on improving your white dog, uh, you'll get better whiskey out. Now we're running that experiment, and so you know we're about to crack open our barrels that we of the best white dog. It took us a long time to make good white dog, uh, but of the best white dog about five years ago, we're cracking those barrels open now and and tasting those, and we're pretty pleased with the results. But you you do have to wait to understand at the end of the day what's it going to taste like. And is that a solemn or a celebratory event when you crack open a barrel uh depends on how it tastes <laughs> so i mean it's we we cracked open a couple barrels about a month ago that we were very pleased with so it was a bit celebratory for us but we've also cracked open it some is, are you anxious is is it a oh, moment yeah. of how did the cake turn out is it going to fall or is it going to be delicious there's a lot of that. That's right. So, And do been, you like that part of it? Is that part exciting to you or is that nerve-wracking so much to the point that it can't be fun until you oh, taste no, it and know exciting. that it's a success? Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, because at, at the end of the day, you, at each step of the process, you're doing what you know you need to do to make it good. And so we're pretty certain we're going to get good stuff out. But again, it took us five years to make each step of that process good. And so now we're starting to crack open things that are good. So it's, it is anticipation, but it's fun anticipation. So let's talk a little bit about the cocktail. What would you do with that fabulous whiskey, bourbon, and scotch once it's come out of those barrels? Because you mix it into something special. You have some crazy imaginative names for not only your whiskeys and, and what you're distilling. Maybe you could share some of those with us. And then I want to move on to some of the cocktails you're mixing with it. Well, I mean, you know, first you, you, you can drink it any way you want to drink it. I, I normally drink it unmixed because we're creating a baby there that we don't really want you to. I mean, we're creating something we want you to taste as it comes out of the wood. But um, certainly not everybody drinks it that way. So you can make a cocktail. and That doesn't hurt my feelings either. So. So, um, so what are some of the names of the product that you're selling? Well, we have um, uh, what we call our core lineup of our, uh, our whiskeys that pay the bills, essentially. We have one called Double Rye, and that's a blend of two different ryes. We have one called Rendezvous Rye, uh, and the name is uh, 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 sort of a celebration of uh, the first rendezvous that the Mountain Men did in the West, and uh, the, the story has it that the first rendezvous in Wyoming lasted a day. And this is when the traders got together and traded their pelts for supplies and went back out and trapped beaver. Well, the first rendezvous, which means return you in French, uh, lasted a day. And the next annual rendezvous was in Wyoming. It lasted 30 days. And the difference was they brought whiskey to that second one. So we think the first big whiskey fest out west was in Utah. So that's why we like telling that story about rendezvous. Uh, we have a whiskey called Campfire. And campfire is a blend of a bourbon rye and a smoky scotch, so it has kind of a campfire taste to it. It's quite lovely. And then we have uh, a whiskey called American Prairie Bourbon, and uh, that's we give ten percent of our profits to the American Prairie Reserve in Montana because uh, it's just a project we think is worthwhile to preserve the West and preserve the flora and fauna of the Great Plains of the West. And uh, we like telling their story. So then we have a few other products that uh, are uh, what we call 
special one-off products. For instance, uh, we have a midwinter night's dram, and uh, it's the rendezvous rye aged in port barrels and French oak, so it gives it a Christmassy flavor. Uh, we have a Yippie Kaye whiskey, which is kind of a fun, spicy rye aged in vermouth and Syrah barrels, so it's very cinnamony and blackberry-ish. So um, those are kind of our lead products right now that and, we sell. And are you the uh, mastermind behind those names, or is it a collaborative affair? Well, we have a team of folks at, at, at High West, and you know, we all contribute little pieces, so it's hard to say any one person uh, created all these, but uh, um, you know, yeah, it takes a team of smart people to come up with these things. So I certainly do my share on that team, but everyone else does Give us a, a little history about the cocktail. Um, what, are you referring to our barrel-aged Manhattan, that you, or which cocktail, or cocktail what, in general? Cocktail in general, the history behind that. Well, cocktail, um, now it's a, it's a generic term for any mixed drink where you mix alcohol with mixers. Um, and a long time ago, cocktail was a specific type of mixed drink. And uh, we think the Americans invented the cocktail, but that specific drink, because there's other types of mixed drinks. There's juleps, there's punches, there's flips, there's Collinses. Uh, there's all kinds of different mixed drinks today we all call those cocktails. But cocktail back in the day meant... Uh, alcohol mixed with sugar mixed with bitters. And we think that they did that because most alcohol probably didn't taste good back then. Um, and we know that Americans drank a lot of alcohol back in the 1800s. It was a hard life. Uh, they drank a lot of beer, a lot of fermented cider, and a lot of hard alcohol. Um, and it's, it's amazing. I, we think they drank like three or four times as much as we drink today per capita. So people were drunk a lot of the time. Uh, but the cocktail was something you'd start with at breakfast and uh, you know, it was kind of a health elixir, people thought. But again, bitter, sugar, and, and alcohol. And, um, that evolved, uh, you know, now we have Manhattans and Old Fashions. Um, the Old Fashioned came about in probably the 1880s. And they were mixing whiskey with all kinds of fancy new things like vermouths and um, absinths and things like that. And people would say, you know, I don't want one of those newfangled things. Give me an Old Fashioned cocktail from the 1820s. And so that's where the name Old Fashioned came from. And would you say, is that your favorite cocktail or you're a purist? Oh, I, you know, anything that's good I like. So I like a good Old Fashioned, but a good Manhattan. There's all kinds of great cocktails out there. And using the term generically now, there's lots of good mixed drinks out there. And so what are the, some of the innovative drinks that, that you guys are mixing over at High West Distillery Restaurant? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, a lot of drinks are variations on a theme. And if you take a Manhattan, for instance... Uh, Manhattan has a, a hard liquor. It has a sort of a herbal sweet liquor like a vermouth, and you might have some bitters. And, um, a lot of things are variations on that theme. So if you change the liquor, you change the vermouth, and you change the bitters, you can come up with a different mixed drink that's a play on a Manhattan. And so we have a lot of those. Um, there's uh, like sours. Uh, if, if you've ever had a margarita, and I know you have, um, you can change the the liquor from tequila to whiskey, you can change the citrus from lime to lemon, uh, and that's called a whiskey sour. And so we do a lot of variations on those. And, uh, I don't even know all the things I come up with. Uh, we have a great sub bartender. Is it, um, there's a, a category of foodie awards called the Beard Nominations, and our bar's been nominated to the Beard uh, for best bar in the country for a couple of years now. So uh, they've come up with lots of great mixed drinks. 
And so you, you ventured out to the wild west of Park City, Utah. You started a distillery. You then built a restaurant, very well-known now and, and a successful restaurant, to keep the whiskey business afloat for those years while it was in the, the barrel. Um, you've just now developed, I think, an entire dude ranch and, and new distillery. Is that not right? Well, um Kind of. I mean, we didn't develop the Dude Ranch. We we were very lucky to meet a man that owns a ranch um, about 20 minutes out of Park City, and it's a 3,000 acre historic working cow ranch. And um, we uh, we essentially partnered with him. He uh, is building a high end boutique hotel, um, kind of modeled after the Amman resorts. There's one in Jackson Hole called Amman Geary, and one in Southern Utah called Amman Ghani. And um, anyway, his name's Mike Phillips, and he uh, uh, partnered with us to build our distillery to uh, kind of be a draw for his hotel, and we just thought it was a great synergy. Uh, so he's our landlord, and, and we're the tenant, and it's sort of a uh, you know high-end working cattle ranch, boutique hotel, distillery, uh, western cultural place to go visit. So it's a pretty neat place. And is there a what next in the vision, or are we pretty much there? <laughs> Well, we're, this is only the beginning. The hotel's not open yet, uh, but we just opened our distillery about nine months ago, or a year ago, actually. Um, and the distillery is uh, it was meant and designed to be a world-class whiskey distillery, so it looks as good as anything in Scotland or Napa, uh, and it's meant for people to come visit and appreciate and learn about whiskey. Um, but we're only just open, we only opened our doors, I think, starting Labor Day. And uh, we don't, we're at like a fraction of the capacity that we'll be at. So the idea is to grow into our, our capacity there or grow into our shoes and uh, help people you know, come and have a good time. And have you seen a, a change in American drinking taste just in the matter of time that you've been involved in the industry? I mean, are there fads? I know that 15 years ago, vodka became immensely popular and there were all sorts of flavors of vodka. Um, is is scotch and whiskey, has it had its moment yet, do you think? It's having its moment now. So there are huge differences in uh, consumer preferences for alcohol now, and um, they are changing to whiskey now, which is really kind of, you know, people went through their vodka craze, and they're, they're, you can look at a vodka shelf, and there's 400 different flavors, and that's just crazy. That's I think that'll go away. Um, but people now are into really heritage products, uh, heritage foods, and whiskey's kind of the ultimate heritage product. It's the ultimate slow food where you have this craft and you have to wait years for it to kind of come of age and know whether you did anything good or not. People are fascinated by that. And so whiskey's really going through a renaissance now. And, um, it's sort of bottomed out in like 98, 2000, and it's, it's been growing like crazy for the last 10 years. And, um, it's, which is fun now. The consumer cares, and that's fun. And I was put here to really help that education process because the consumer, they, they 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 learned about wine. Now we talk about Pinot Noir and Cabernet Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc. Well, you didn't talk about it. You didn't talk that way 20 years ago. You know, you had box Bordeaux and box Burgundy. But we know our grapes now. Well, 10 years from now, we're going to know our different grains. And scotch comes from barley and bourbon comes from corn. And, um, people are going through that phase now. And there wasn't the blending, now that you mentioned that, there wasn't the blending, it seems, of grapes that there has been in the recent past, where you have new wines um, emerging that we hadn't heard of 20 years ago. And it seems that with 
the bourbon and whiskeys and scotches, you have that same ability to blend and make new mixes and, and um, new flavors. Yeah, I think, I, well, I, there's always been a lot of these blended wines around. I think we're just, we're really appreciating them now. And uh, a lot of them were just very esoteric. Now and they're more mainstream. You, you absolutely have approached this project as an artisan. Was that purposeful? Did you imagine approaching it in a different perspective or different manner than was maybe traditional? Well, it, it, as you know, there's there's many ways to approach a business. And whether you're going to start a brewery or you're going to start it to get rich or you're going to start it to um, express a passion. And, you know, I we didn't – you don't start a, a distillery to get rich, I don't think. And if it happens, that's wonderful. But, you know, to, to start it to express a passion and, you know, hopefully pay the bills along the way is – um, really our approach and um, we're just trying to make the best thing we can and enjoy life doing it so that's the artistry has I guess. it been there's the artistry so has it been a fulfilling creative venture I'm sure many challenging aspects but has it has it satisfied that element of your well, desire to experiment and create yeah I mean I, I think one sort of metric of the fulfillment is you know at the end of the day you hope somebody likes it enough to buy it and to buy it again and you know so you can sustain it and pay the bills um and so the the satisfaction is yeah people are buying it and you know we've broken even and now we can afford to to do some different things but um and to innovate not for innovation's sake but to create something we hope people enjoy so so just in our last few minutes let's talk about that a little bit the enjoyment and and even just sort of the place of alcohol in our society, and we've talked a little bit through this interview about its development and people being drunk in, the, mm-hmm. in history for a large part of it when things were rough. Um, have you thought much about, as, as you've gone through this process of developing your business and developing the product, about where alcohol sits in your mind or should sit in, in society? Well, I, uh, indeed, I mean, uh, you know, I, I run into people all the time that I, I might say, "Hey, you want to try our product?" And they say, "Well, I'm reforming, or I was in AA, or, or you know, we're certainly in a state where not everybody drinks, and we're also in a state where there's the American Indian population. We all know the the bad things alcohol did to them, and um, certainly I care about that. And, and you know, we're we're not kidding ourselves that that can happen with the product, but we also sell a, a very expensive product that not everybody's going to buy. And if if you're going to buy something to get drunk, you're not going to buy High West and fulfill a, a you know a, a base need of yours. And you know you, you can go there with just about any product with the car, and you know cars help you get around, but people kill each other in cars as well. And um, so. Uh, I, I'm not kidding myself to say I can reform the world and their alcohol habits, and we certainly preach and try to help people appreciate it and not overindulge. But you know, we're all individuals and we're all responsible for our actions. And you know, there's more than just alcohol in the world that can cause a bad problem. So I'm also thinking that you know it's balance and it, it provides um, as a connoisseur that you are. It provides something that is very pleasurable. Indeed, yeah. Just like like racing cars or shooting guns. You know, guns don't kill people. People pull the triggers. And um, same thing with alcohol. I mean, I, we, we hope people appreciate it and for the connoisseurship of it. But, uh, you know, I realize and I'm realistic that some people might overindulge. And, uh, but it, know, it we, has a value. 
Indeed. When you, yeah. when used wisely and in the manner that's um, appropriate. It, it has a value, and you know certainly we believe it can lead to a richer life if appropriately used, and uh, connoisseurship's a, a pleasure if you get the opportunity to learn, and we believe that education leads to appreciation, and uh, you know connoisseurship's a source of pleasure for people, and uh, it's nice to promote that. And has it piqued your interest in any other industries? that maybe before you didn't look at the same way as far as the ability to experiment, create, and be a connoisseur? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we have a restaurant, and in the restaurant we, we have the opportunity to serve a lot of foods for people, and uh, you know, we're kind of into a lot of the slow foods that requires and shit like cheeses, so we serve a lot of cheeses in our restaurant, and I appreciate cheese a lot more now. We serve a lot of beer and wine in our restaurant, and I appreciate those. Uh, and lately, I've gotten into hams, and uh, everybody's had prosciutto, um, and we make prosciutto here in the United States that no one knows anything about or appreciates. It's called Southern Ham, and they're every bit as artisan and, and delicious as prosciutto is, uh, but people just need to be educated about it. We have in our own backyard something that's just like prosciutto and it's a fraction of the cost. And so we're starting to serve those hams in our restaurant and teach people how did the pioneers age these things to stay alive. But then what's the difference between a really good one and a really bad one? And that's artisanship. And so there's kind of sourship all around us that, you know, we just need to learn about. And, and once you learn about it, education is appreciation. Well, now that got me thinking. So thank you so much, <laughs> David, for joining us. Uh, it was wonderful speaking with you and we can all go out and now look at these cocktails and liquors and products a little differently than we had before. Well, I hope so. Thank you for the thoughtful questions. This is Ellie Newman on That Got Me Thinking. My guest today was David Perkins from the High West Distillery. This is KDPI 88.5 FM Ketchum. 